This is Dr. Sean McKay, and you're listening to Reinforce Radio. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Episode 16 of Reinforce Radio, a podcast dedicated to our special tactics operators, our combat mission support specialists, and their families. So how well do you perform under pressure? I know you think you do well, and for the most part, you probably do. However, most of that is probably just an innate part of who you are and the training you've received over your career. Still, you can improve your ability to perform under pressure even more by better understanding how you react in high-demand situations. So in today's episode, our goal is to do just that. We're going to hit several topics surrounding this issue to better inform you and prepare you ahead of time for these situations. First, we're going to work on a better understanding of stress itself and how it works. Next, we'll review the effects of stress on your functioning. Then, we'll explore how our thinking styles impact our performance under pressure. And then finally, we'll review strategies for optimizing your performance before, during, and after the stressor. Lots to cover today, so let's just get started. So just what is stress? At its most basic, stress is a physiological response to demands on us present in our environment. Without any stress response at all, our responses under pressure would be ineffective and half-hearted. But when we think of stressors, there's generally two types that we need to consider. Primary stressors arise objectively from the task we're faced with. Think about the stress involved with completing a PT exam or going through assessment selection and all the tasks involved with that selection. This type of stressor can boost your cognitive and physical arousal to meet the challenge at hand as you're getting pumped up for the task that you're, uh, that you're doing. Secondary stressors, on the other hand, are tangential aspects of the situation that are unrelated to the challenging task. The anxiety of doing well, the worry about letting people down, the comparing yourself to the other guys in the selection, those kind of stressors. And this type of stressor is more likely to impede your performance because it's typically unpredictable, more difficult to control, and extraneous to the task itself. Furthermore, you need to understand that stress is transactional. And what I mean by that is that stress ultimately is a result of the interaction between you and your environment. And since we're talking about thinking, feeling human beings here, emotions often come into play in high-demand situations. Now, emotions in themselves are not harmful to your performance under stress. They can, however, become harmful when they are experienced at the wrong intensity, for the wrong duration, at the wrong frequency, or are of the wrong type for the situation. Because of this, how we cope with stress becomes crucial. And when we engage in problem-focused coping, we work to manage the negative emotions by addressing the underlying problem. For example physical training, um, sims, doing things like that to prepare you and the skills that you need for that assessment and selection. Okay, This type of coping is ideal in situations where you have greater control. Those are things you can prepare ahead of time. Now, emotion-focused coping, on the other hand, manages the emotions directly regardless of the underlying source of the problem. Focusing on just managing emotions can be helpful in situations that are relatively short-lived and in which you have minimal control. In other words, just managing the emotions and the physiological arousal until you can get through that task, so to speak. 
Now, as an additional layer of complexity here, you have to understand that your experience of stress will often depend on your interpretation of that stress. You see, stress itself can be either negative or positive, and often whether you whether the stress you experience is perceived as positive or negative will largely depend on your own cognitive interpretations of that stress, which we'll get to later. But positive stress, or eustress, is more productive in that it can be helpful and motivating to the individual, motivating, motivating you to hard work, improving your performance, and reaching your goals. You typically experience stress as eustress when your available resources to manage the situation are sufficient for the demand. When this happens, we typically frame the stressor as a challenge that works to boost optimal performance. Negative stress, or distress, is what we typically think of when we use the word stress, and usually involves feelings of being anxious or overwhelmed and often results in physiological signs of stress, headaches, muscle tension, high heart rate, and the like. Stressors are experienced as distress when the demands of the task outweigh our available resources to manage it. In such a case, we often see the stressor as a threat and performance is impaired. But we'll get to how to improve all this later in the episode. So how does stress actually affect us? I think we've all experienced the physiological and the psychological signs of stress, even if we didn't know at the time the symptoms we were dealing with were, in fact, stress-related. I'm sure you can probably recite a lot of these along with me. The more common physiological symptoms that we will all recognize as a result of stress can include things like sweaty palms, rapid heart rate, shakiness, gastrointestinal distress, and things like that. At higher levels of stress, though, Grossman and Christensen in their book uh, On Combat uh, have pointed out that you may experience things like tunnel vision, auditory exclusion, also known as tunnel hearing, uh, impaired fine motor control, and even altered perceptions of time as if time is either sped up or slowed down. Though more generally speaking, Grossman and Christensen discuss a predictable pattern of physiological response to stress as the stressor increases. Now, early on, stress contributes to increased alertness and concentration, and that's a good thing. Additionally, our fine motor skills, our complex motor skills, and our reaction times tend to improve at lower levels of stress as well. However, as the stress increases, these fine and complex motor skills and reaction times plateau and eventually deteriorate. They note that generally fine motor skills will deteriorate before complex motor skills will, which in turn will suffer before you start to experience perceptual changes like tunnel vision, tunnel hearing, or distorted perceptions in time. All that being said, though, your actual physiological stress response is regulated at least in part by your assessment of the situation. Like I mentioned earlier, if you perceive the stress as a challenge, you're likely to experience the stress in a more positive dynamic, resulting in improved cardiac functioning and circulation and reduced cortisol levels. However, if you perceive the stressor as a threat of some kind, cardiac output is reduced, as is peripheral blood circulation, and cortisol levels, the stress hormone, will be elevated. So, your perception and interpretation of stress cognitively can directly impact your physiological response to it. So, what about these cognitive reactions to stress, though? You know, often, though, we miss those, okay? Not so much that we don't notice the problems, but rather that we don't always connect those cognitive problems to stress itself. Some of these cognitive or psychological changes that we experience under stress can include impaired concentration or working memory, 
slow decision-making processes, probably due to a loss of situational awareness under stress, increased impulsivity in our decisions and behaviors, and ultimately impaired team performance. We can also make more cognitive errors in our decisions under stress because we rely more heavily on cognitive shortcuts or heuristics under stress, and in such cases our ability to analyze complex situations deteriorates. This can also result in tactical fixation or failure to change tactical strategies when necessary. Okay, quick status update. We've done a quick overview of the nature of stress itself and the types of physiological and psychological effects of stress on your performance. So how do we manage all this and perform with increasing efficiency under stress? Now, performing under pressure necessitates that we talk about the nature of thinking and arousal. So let's talk about that for a bit. Okay? When exploring thinking under pressure, you can consider the concepts of System 1 and System 2 thinking. System 1 thinking uh, is the intuitive, unconscious thinking that we do. It's quick, it requires minimal effort, and it relies on mental shortcuts or heuristics, which makes it advantageous in high-pressure situations. The problem with System 1 thinking is, is that it is prone to cognitive bias and errors. The good news is that errors can be reduced or minimized through training and practice, which I know you guys get a lot of. System 2 thinking, on the other hand, is your conscious, analytic thought. It is slow, deliberate, and requires effort. And though it's less prone to errors, it's more likely to fail under high pressure or critical situations. Under time pressure, we tend to use the simpler forms of information processing, System 1, and narrow our field of attention. Now, if this narrowing of attention results in ignoring crucial information, performance suffers. But if it allows you to ignore non-essential information, distractors, and only focus on the pertinent information, then decision-making could be effective and efficient. Therefore, we need a balance of System 1 and System 2 thinking in order to operate at optimal levels of performance. For example, it's not efficient to force slow and methodical System 2 thinking in pressured situations. But since we rely more on shortcuts in System 1 thinking, building in checklists and checkpoints in our decision-making or increasing training iterations to enhance expertise, muscle memory, uh, will improve performance in these circumstances. Now let's talk a little bit about the arousal stuff. Okay, the Yerkes-Dodson Law indicates that for any activity, there's an optimal level of arousal for peak performance. Performance is found to suffer both in states of high and low arousal, so the goal of training is to find the appropriate level of arousal so that we can, quote, change the curve, unquote, and attain optimal performance over a wider array of situations. Ultimately, we want to hit an optimal level of arousal known as the flow state. This is that time in your performance when everything just seems to click. Your thinking is clear, time appears to slow down, everything is working just right, and the job just seems fun. The key is finding a balance between your skills, available resources, and the demands of the task. If the demands outstrip our resources, we tend to see distress and poor performance. When our skills or resources significantly outstrip task demands, we see underarousal and boredom which can degrade performance. Somewhere in between, when there's a balanced zone of skill, task demand, and resources, we find that optimal flow state. Operational training will boost your skills to help widen this zone. 
Cognitive tasks to reframe stress as challenge and learn stress management skills can also help widen the zone. Now we know you get the operational training and we know you have your, your RIP team available to strengthen the physical and cognitive training so that we can make the flow state as wide and easily accessible as possible. Now those things are more about coming in and seeing us for a consult and tweak things for you guys individually. But there are some general considerations that we can talk about here and this is what we're about to do to help you optimize your performance under stress. So let's dive into all of that. So when it comes to optimizing performance under pressure, you can examine the process in basically three phases. Preparation before the initiation of the stressor, maintaining optimal performance in the moment during the stressful event, and finally appropriate recovery after the stressful event. So let's just take them in order. At its most basic level, Simply maintaining good general health will go a long way to have you adequately prepared to perform under pressure. Getting adequate sleep, maintaining a good exercise routine are crucial. Addressing and managing personal stressors ahead of time, like relational or occupational issues, is important as well. And finally, know the impact of substance use on your health and performance, and manage this appropriately. And that being said, there are still techniques or training you can utilize that will further your skill set in maintaining good performance under pressure. Let's first talk about stress inoculation training, or SIT. This is a form of cognitive behavioral therapy that encompasses three steps. First is an education process whereby you prepare for stress cognitively by focusing on gaining a better understanding of the physiological and psychological impacts of stress kind of what we've been talking about earlier in this podcast. The second stage is skill acquisition and rehearsal. In this stage, you focus on developing and practicing skills to manage your physiological arousal and stress. Cognitive restructuring is also used in this stage to teach you how to control negative thoughts. Remember, your negative attribution of threat can impact your performance. And you're also taught relaxation skills to manage the physiological response to stress. The final stage of SIT is to apply these techniques in real-world or simulated environments similar to the environment for which you're preparing. The goal of SIT is not to eliminate stress. Instead, through SIT, you seek to learn the nature of the stress response and learn a variety of skills to access for the management of this stress when needed. The greater control over the stress, the better your ability to perform at optimal levels when under pressure. SIT has been shown to reduce the subjective experience of anxiety as well as objective markers of anxiety and to enhance overall performance under stress. It's been demonstrated to be an effective tool for law enforcement, military personnel, athletes, and medical providers. Now, mindfulness is another great tool for learning the skills to manage stress and improve performance before the event. You guys have heard me talk about mindfulness a lot before, and I would even refer you back to the previous episode we did on mindfulness for more details. But the benefits of mindfulness in optimizing performance under pressure cannot be overstated. Mindfulness has been demonstrated to improve our ability to control our focus and attention, as well as our working memory. And additionally, it can counter the impairment of working memory that is naturally brought on by stress. And mindfulness is also an effective tool in managing the overwhelming and interfering emotions that can be brought on by stress as well. Uh, and finally, uh, through mindfulness, you can learn to narrow your focus to a crucial task when it's needed and then expand that attention and focus outwards to have greater overall situational awareness of your environment as the situation unfolds. 
So, improved attention and focus, more consistent access to working memory, better handling of the emotions brought on by stress, and modulating attention and focus as needed are all part of mindfulness, and they're all skills one needs to be able to maintain performance under pressure. So, it, I, like I said, I can't stress the importance of mindfulness enough. Now, this next one I know you're familiar with, overlearning. Overlearning is basically continuing to practice a skill even after you're already competent in that skill. I know, I know. Pretty much sums up the operator's life, right? We talk about muscle memory. Once a skill is overlearned, it becomes more of an automatic process for the individual. And as a skill becomes more automated, it requires less concentration and working memory, or the more methodical system two thinking we talked about earlier. And this allows the skill to be performed more rapidly and efficiently, especially under pressure when time for planning and thought are limited. The more efficient you become in a skill, the more confident and control of your actions you become, and this increased sense of control can improve performance as well. You should always be careful about inflexibility, though, when relying on overlearning for performance enhancement. As a skill becomes overlearned, it can limit your flexibility in more complex and challenging circumstances, okay? And keep that in mind, and that's something that we can talk about at some point if you'd like. Now, finally here, let's talk about visualization or mental practice, okay? Now, this is really just an extension of overlearning. Like we said with overlearning, performance is improved through repeated training iterations. And once that skill has been overlearned, it becomes more automated and no longer is reliant on higher-order cognitive processing, okay, that methodical stuff. The practice, though, does not always have to be live or in person. Mental practice, visualization of the performance or the action, can be just like physical practice. Here, you visualize yourself in as much detail as possible, performing each stage of the task required. Visualizing skills performed correctly and accurately in real time, and including all of your senses in that visualization will enhance the effectiveness of that practice. Now, while mental practice cannot fully substitute for actual physical skill acquisition in practice, it can be used as an adjunct to bolster skills already well established. Okay? It can also be used to help you practice managing your emotional responses to stressors as well. So, to sum up, enhancing performance under pressure before that pressure hits will revolve around being as prepared physically, mentally, and as emotionally as possible. And this preparation can be done through a variety of techniques that are easy to accomplish either individually or as part of your team. Alright, so how do we enhance our performance under pressure while in the middle of that pressure? This stage is not so much about preparing skills and strengthening them, it's about maintaining control of those physiological, psychological, and emotional responses as they happen in the moment so that you can devote your resources more to the actual skills needed. So let's start out with one that probably at first glance sounds like it doesn't make sense. Increasing arousal. Now wait a minute. Don't we want to manage arousal? Well, yeah, but sometimes, let's admit we may go into a situation under aroused. Say you're switching from a day op to a night op and your body hasn't quite adjusted to the change in schedule. You may need to work to increase your arousal to get into the zone, so to speak. So one option here is to just do a physical warm-up. Do some quick calisthenics to get the heart pumping and adrenaline running. Um, you can use cue words or imagery 
to um, get you into an active mindset to accomplish the task as well. And here's one that I like. Finally, you can use music as a really good tool to get you in that mindset. Okay, Music therapy is often used to increase or decrease arousal when needed, so it's a great tool to use in this situation. Try to match the music tempo to where you want your heart rate to be. Okay, There, there are several great arousal control techniques that you can use to modulate your physiological and cognitive arousal as needed. If you've ever spent time talking with me offline or in my office, you've heard of most of these and know something about them. To go into detail on all these, you would go beyond the time limits that we have today, and this is already going to be a longer episode than usual. So, But if you want to know more, just hit me up and let's talk. Okay. However, skills like meditation, with or without yoga, uh, self-hypnosis, biofeedback, progressive muscle relaxation, or learning good relaxation imagery or visualization skills are all great techniques to use to learn how to modulate your stress, okay? Now, whereas things like biofeedback, self-hypnosis, and yoga aren't really built for managing that stress in the moment, in the middle of an event, they can teach you skills necessary that you can utilize quickly during those moments when needed. Now, skills like meditation, progressive muscle relaxation, or relaxation imagery are skills that are more amenable to using in the moment. All right. In any case, all skills are well-developed techniques to help you better modulate stress when needed. So if you want to talk about any of those in greater detail, you guys know where to find me. Hit me up and let's explore some of those. Okay. Uh, now, here's another skill most of you will be familiar with because we've talked about it. Uh, performance breathing. Uh, when under stress, your body activates the sympathetic nervous system, that fight-or-flight system, to prepare your body for danger and to act for survival. However, survival functioning is not always what's needed. Rather, you need to have more control of your cognitive processes for planning and decision-making and executive functioning, processes which are more readily available under the parasympathetic nervous system activation. Okay, That's kind of the rest and recovery side. Now, many of the autonomic nervous system's functions are automatic and not under your immediate control. Heart racing, blood pressure rising, sweat, and so on. However, breathing is the one manifestation of the autonomic nervous system that you can actually control. So learn effective breathing techniques like tactical or box breathing. Now, this involves breathing in a measured pattern of a four-count in-breath, hold for a four-count, release for a four-count, pause for a four count, and then repeat. Now, this technique has been used by law enforcement, athletes, and even Navy SEALs to manage stress and recover quickly when needed. Another one that I like is the 3-2-6 pattern. Breathing in tends to activate the sympathetic nervous system, whereas breathing out activates the parasympathetic nervous system, which is more where we want to be under stress so we can control our thoughts better. So extending the out-breath does a great job of activating the parasympathetic and slowing down the physiological stress response. Okay, so enough with the physiological stuff. Let's finish up this middle stage of optimizing performance by focusing on some cognitive work, okay? Now, as I said earlier in the episode, how we think shapes how we see and perceive the world, which will in turn shape our actions and our behaviors in that world. Sometimes our thoughts run towards the unhealthy and the negative, which impair our performance under stress. 
Cognitive reframing is the technique of changing your assessment of a situation to alter its emotional impact on you. It's actually the foundation for the work we do in cognitive behavioral therapy, which you guys have heard me talk about before as well. Recognize your unhealthy thoughts and reframe them in a more rationally based way that minimizes their emotional impact on you. Now, when you use cognitive reframing to modulate these negative emotions, the resulting cognitive change ultimately decreases the subjective experience of those emotions. And to get a little bit more sciency here, modulating these negative emotions decreases sympathetic nervous system activation and reduces activity in the amygdala of the brain. And that's the part of the brain crucial in the processing of anxiety and fear. Now, there's also indications that cognitive reframing helps to improve cardiovascular functioning as well. So, your thoughts and how healthy and rational they are can play a strong role in the type and intensity of emotion you feel under pressure. So how then do we deal with these negative thoughts that we may experience? It's all about breaking the cycle of these negative thoughts. You can't legitimately suppress thoughts just like mindfulness is not about emptying your mind of thoughts. It's not the way our brains work. So rather we work to distract from the negative and refocus to more rational or positive thought patterns. The hardest part of dealing with negative thoughts, though, is even noticing that they're happening. Too often our negative thoughts are automatically triggered and play like tapes in our head. They usually happen underneath conscious awareness like breathing. It happens, but we're not consciously aware that it is. So, until you realize the negative thoughts are occurring, you can do nothing about them. Often, recognizing these negative thought patterns occurs through exercises like thought catching or journaling. In fact, actively monitoring your thoughts under emotions or stress is a central part of cognitive behavioral therapy and programs like stress inoculation training that we talked about earlier. When you begin to recognize these underlying automatic thoughts, examine whether these thoughts are valid facts or whether, whether or not they're just a manifestation of your current emotional or stress level and respond accordingly. Also, becoming more aware of your automatic thought processes helps you recognize cognitive errors you make like overgeneralization, black and white thinking, catastrophizing, as well as using absolute words like must, never, always, should. All of these just set up unrealistic expectations of your behavior and set you up to fail. Finally, consider the phrase, beat the stress fool, or use the acronym BTSF. Okay, This stands for a four-step process to help you quickly get all the stress under control to perform optimally. These letters stand, stand for, the first, first is B for breath, which is tactical breathing. Okay, T is for talk, or positive or rational self-talk. The S is for C, for visualization exercises. And F is focus, for mindfulness or some other skill to bring yourself back to the present task at hand. So, BTSF, or if you want to have the fun phrase, beat the stress fool. Okay. Um, it's a quick process that incorporates many of the things we've explored so far to give you an easy tactic to get back under control when needed in these high-stress situations. Okay, so we've prepared as best we can before the stress, and we've explored ways to manage the stress in the moment. So how about recovering after the stressful event? Okay, First, we need to realize that there's a physiological aftermath to deal with. 
After an experience of significant stress, there will inevitably be a letdown, a parasympathetic crash, we call it, which is a withdrawal from the sustained sympathetic arousal of the event. You've been in fight or flight for a while, and all of a sudden you start to crash, okay? Acknowledge it's going to happen and get ready for it. Regain your situational awareness, do a sweep of your environment, and use checklists to maintain that you've gained control of the environment if you need to. Um, checklists are really good to be used here. Also, utilize some of the skills discussed earlier to modulate your arousal. Whether you need to come down or ramp up a bit to maintain physiological and cognitive control after an event. There may be also times when you have to deal with an adrenaline dump. Imagine getting worked up for a mission only to be ordered to stand down at the last minute. You're going to have a buildup of adrenaline when you're getting ready for that mission and no need for it now. You need to burn that stuff off and you do whatever works. Okay, Exercise, tactical breathing, mindfulness or meditation, um, play some really loud music and then slowly turn the volume down, um, or simply walk away and take a 10-minute break from the environment. Okay. Now, once things are back under control and regulated, now's the time for re a debrief. Okay. Discuss with your team the event and things that happened and come to terms with it and learn from it. What went right? What went wrong? How can we improve? Normalize and manage your reactions to the event. Check in with your team and discuss the event calmly to separate the memory of the event from the sympathetic nervous system arousal. Delinking memories from high physiological or emotional arousal helps to cut that trauma psychological consequence link and helps to diffuse the situation. Okay. Now, finally, many activities have been linked to increased resilience following stressful events as well. Okay? Things like positive support systems, active coping mechanisms, availability of psychological support, and self-care activities like exercise, mindfulness-based stress reduction, and even journaling therapy can all be effective means to promote resilience. Okay, okay wow, that was a lot. <laughs> we covered the nature of stress, the impacts of stress on performance, cognitive processes in performance under pressure, and a variety of techniques before, during, and after the event to modulate the pressure and perform at an optimal level. I appreciate the fact that you took the time to stick with me through this. I hope that you found something or several things that were informative and help you to better prepare and maintain yourself as you're constantly hit with high-pressure events and expected to perform at a high rate of success. You know my goal with this podcast is to help you guys stay healthy, fit, and in the fight. And I hope that this month's episode will give you some tools to do just that. So, thanks for listening, guys. And until next time, this has been Dr. Sean McKay, and you've been listening to Reinforce Radio. Reinforce Radio.